how good it is to know that this is the God that we serve. Um, as uh, Annie had said, you know, it's it's interesting that uh, we 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 think about salvation, and and I think sometimes we forget that this this sounds too good to be true, right? Uh, that there would be a God who would love us even though we have offended him, uh, even though we are under his wrath, he would still send his son, that his son would gladly, voluntarily take upon himself uh, our sin, and he would voluntarily live the life that, 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 that we should have lived, that we failed to live, so that at the cross he would give us his righteousness and take away our unrighteousness, and that we would be sealed by his Holy Spirit, and that one day, uh, at the end of days, God will indeed put an end to all sin, all wickedness, all unrighteousness, all injustice, and, and on earth there will only be righteousness and justice and peace forever and ever and ever as the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and we will worship the Lord with people from every tribe and every nation and every language along with all of God's creation and, and there will only be joy forever, as, as Edwards would say, ever-increasing joy forever and ever and ever and ever. I know you've heard this before, most of you who are here. But, but for those who, who are new to this, that just sounds too good to be true. <laughs> and it's our joy to say to you and to remind each other and to spread all over the nations, oh, it's true. <laughs> it is so true. Our hope is real. This news is good and real and true. And we can enjoy this and enjoy uh, uh, what is to come and what is even starting to crack, uh, or to, to flow through the cracks, if you will. We're starting to see what God is doing and what God is capable of making all things new. It's good news. Don't ever lose the goodness of the good news. <laughs> but enjoy it and delight in it and treasure it and treasure him forever and ever and ever. Amen? Oh, it's been a while. So uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're back after a couple of weeks of travel and, and, and so on. I've missed you guys. Um, I've, I've, missed, I've missed the other half of your faces too. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I've, I've, I've missed y'all and it's so good to be back, so good to be home and, uh, and I say that because this is a hard text, and, and you may not think that I miss you guys that much. <laughs> and so I got to say up front, I really do miss y'all. Um, uh, but this passage is a little bit of a, of a, of a tough one. Um, and so I've given you the heads up, uh, but I think even in the, the toughness of it, even in a somewhat diciness of it, uh, that you will be rem uh, reminded once again of our great God. Uh, that even in the mess, there's a Savior. And even in the mess, there's hope. And so I, I, my prayer is that as we go through this text, that we would be reminded of uh, the God who, who gave us a Savior specifically for the mess. Uh, that we don't have to live in fairyland, if you will, in order to, uh, in order to uh, embrace this, but we can embrace it right in the real world with the tough stuff, with the mess that is our lives. Amen? So with that said, let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 7. 
Romans chapter 7 is where we are. And once you're there, say, I'm there. Romans chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse 7. Romans 7, beginning at verse 7. Reading from the English Standard Version, where it reads, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. So, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We know that the law is spiritual. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do what I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Mm. This is a fantastic passage. We won't have time to get through all of this this week. Uh, But we are going to go through part of this this week, and then we'll look at the rest of it, Lord willing, next week. But let's pray that God would give us insight and understanding that we may grasp what Paul is saying here. I have a hunch that we get what he's saying. (laughs) 
have a hunch that we know this all too well. But let's pray that God would give us insight and understanding, not just to grasp this, but to share with Paul the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask your grace and your mercy upon us right now as we study this passage. Lord, uh, this is one of those passages that just resonates with us. We know what Paul is talking about. We've lived it, and we have felt it in our lives, in the deepest parts of our souls and our beings. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us hope, that the gospel would be good news for this mess, that we would struggle well all the way to the end until sin and death are no more and only we, with Christ our King, will reign supreme. Oh, what a day that will be. So, Father, I pray that your word will be crystal clear to us, help us diagnose well, and help us live well for the glory of Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not believe in Jesus, I ask that you would make it so crystal clear that Christ is who he says he is, that they would turn from their sin, turn to Christ, entrust their lives to him, that they may be saved. For only in Christ do we have hope beyond the grave. We thank you, Father, for all these things, and we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Picture this. You're watching a movie, and there is a guy who uh, is suspicious. He's not the suspicious one. He's suspicious of another. The one that he's suspicious of has been accused of murders, multiple murders throughout the city. And he is determined to find out who the killer is. But as he's going through, as he's following the cookie crumbs, if you will, he finally gets to a point where he's able to identify who the killer is. And just as he's about to nab the killer, in come the police who tackle him to the ground, put him in handcuffs, and drag him off as he's saying all along the way, it's not me, it's not me, I'm not the guy, it's that guy over there. But nobody listens to him. And now he's got to work on another task. And that task is not just to identify who the killer is. He's already done that. But now the task is to convince people that he's not the one who is guilty. But in fact, that guy over there is the one who's guilty. And thus begins the plot. How many of y'all have seen a movie like that? Yeah. It's so suspenseful, right? Because you know that that person is innocent. And you may even know, if the movie shows you, who the real killer is, but you feel that sense of going, I've got to clear my name, right? I've got to show that I am not the guilty one, but that person over there is the guilty one. And I've got to convince everyone that, uh, that I'm right, that that person is there, that the evidence points to them and not to me. It seems like Paul is, is at that point here in the gospel uh, in, as he's writing the letter to the Romans. He's talked so much about how the gospel is revealed apart from the law. Chapter 3 tells us that. Uh, that the gospel, this righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, though the law and the prophets testify to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he's laid out this case that the righteousness of God does not come through obedience to the law, which is wildly controversial. 
You have heard us say this week after week after week as we've gone through Romans. Paul is saying here that you are not righteous before God by obeying God's commands. And that sounds so counterproductive. That's so subversive, right? How, do, how am I righteous before God? It's not by obeying him. Really? Because that seems to be the definition like everywhere. But we've already blown that, haven't we? We've, that road is not an option for us because we've already uh, uh, fallen off the rails on that road. So what we need is the righteousness of another We need another who has obeyed God's law perfectly. We need another one who has done everything that God commanded and beyond, and we need his righteousness to be our righteousness. We we could measure our righteousness like baseball, right? You have folks who are batting, you know, right? Even now, I mean, batting 300 seems like an like you know a unicorn, right? You know, uh, where where you say, hey, this guy's batting 305. What does that mean? That means 30.5% of the time he hits the ball. That's what that means, right? And they, and they wind up being the batting champion. And you go, yeah, he's better than everyone else because three out of ten times he's going to hit the ball. <laughs> we could measure our righteousness that way and go, well, I'm better than that guy. You know, I'm batting 250. You know, I'm better than that guy. I'm batting 334. But, but God is looking for the righteousness that bats 1,000, right? The one who hits 10 out of 10 times, and only Christ Jesus can be that one. And so that leads us then to go, well, what's up with the law? And Paul understands that tension. What's up with the law? And Paul has been laying out, especially in these chapters, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, that the law... Uh, reveals our sin. In fact, the passage that we looked at uh, last time we were in Romans, look at verses 4 through 6 of of chapter 7. Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Listen to this, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now that we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, uh, 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 so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So in other words, while we were still living in the flesh, in other words, we were, we were driven by our fleshly desires, driven by our fleshly passions and, and lusts and so on. Well, in other words, just layman's terms, whatever you felt like doing, you did. Whatever came to mind, that's what you, were, that's what you rolled with. That was my life. But now that I have died to the law by, uh, by being uh, dead in Christ, now I am able to live a new life, a new way that is not living, uh, uh, driven by the written code of the law, but rather is a new way that is driven by the Holy Spirit. And Paul's going to get into a lot of detail on that in chapter 8. We live now by the work and by the following of the Holy Spirit. He teaches us where to go. He teaches us how to live. He changes us from the inside out. But now that leads us, though, to go, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Paul anticipates us asking this question. Wait a second. So we, you're, you're now putting this contrast between the way of the Spirit and the way of the law. So are you telling us then 
that the law is bad. Ooh, you got them there, didn't you? See? If, as verse 5 says, we were aroused by the law, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, then wouldn't that make the law bad? I mean, the law is an accomplice. See? The law's in on this. The law has conspired with sin to, uh, to entrap us. That's the problem. The law is bad. And Paul's got to deal with that. Paul's like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. No, 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 no. Don't uh, uh, accuse the law, and we could even say uh, a little broadly, don't accuse God's word for your sin. Did you catch that? Don't blame God's word for your sin. How, how does this look? Well, you say, well, you know, I wouldn't, you know, have you know any lustful desires or anything like that if 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 the you know the God's word didn't say that it was bad. So what do we need to do? We need to get God's word out of the way, and then I'll feel much better about myself. Haven't you heard folks in our culture say things like that? The problem is the Bible repressing us. The problem is the Bible holding us back. The Bible is the problem with all of its standards and rules and regulations and all that stuff. So if I could just get that out of the way, then I'll be free to live my life any way I want to live my life. In chapter 6, the problem was lawlessness, right? So can we continue to sin since we're no longer under the law but under grace? No, that's lawlessness. You can't do that. Well, now he's dealing with the, with the people who are, if you will, anti-law. These are folks who say, the problem isn't me, the problem is the law. And Paul is now going here to say, I've got to clear the law's name, if you will. I've got to prove the law's innocence here. And in so doing, I've got to point you to the real culprit in here. And the real culprit is sin. That's actually my first point here. Sin, not the law, is the real culprit. Sin is the culprit. Sin is the problem that we have in us, every single one of us. Look what he says in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And we know the drill. Paul asks a question. Paul thinks it's ridiculous. And Paul goes, no, what's wrong with you? Right? By no means, may genoita, may it never be, okay? But then he says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Sin is the culprit, not the law. The law is not an accomplice to sin, but rather the law exposes sin. The law exposes sin. The law is the one that's handcuffed going, I'm not the guy. That's the guy over there. Of course, he couldn't do that because he's handcuffed. That guy over there, that's the one. You know, it's not me. I've been framed. This is a setup. You've got the wrong person. The law is the one pointing to sin, saying, that's the guy. That's the one you need to be looking at. Look what he says. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, 
produced in me all kinds of covetousness. All right, now stop, 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 stop. Y'all know this, don't you? You know this. The little two-year-old knows this. Hey, little toddlers, how y'all doing? Yeah, they, they know this. I remember, and, and I wasn't a toddler here. I was actually in about sixth grade. I think it was sixth grade. And there was, in, uh, in one, one teacher's classroom, there was a jar of marshmallows. Okay? And there was one time where I just happened to walk into that room, and I was the only person in that room. And I saw that jar of marshmallows. Now, I knew that that jar of marshmallows was a reward for students who had done their assignments, they'd done their homework, or they cleaned up their desk at the right time and all that. And I knew that there was no other reason for anybody to have one of those marshmallows. But I was in there all by myself, and I was just going, I want a marshmallow. <laughs> so here I am looking at that jar of marshmallows, and there's nobody in there, and I'm going, I can do this. Nobody's coming in anytime soon. If I could just run, hurry up, grab a marshmallow, stuff in my face and everything, everything's going to be fine. So I go in there, and I do just that. I grab the jar, grab the marshmallow, stuff in my face, put it in there and all that. And just as that happens, the teacher walked in. It always happens that way, you know. You're like, the timing was perfect. If I, if I didn't think so long, I would have gotten away with it. But, but, but what happens? So, I, so they come in, Ron Jor, you know, did you have, you know, what, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, did, you, did you take a marshmallow? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you do there? You're stuck, right? And of course I did it. Of course I, I took advantage of that. Why? Why did I want that marshmallow? Now think about it. It's marshmallows. Who cares about marshmallows? You know, who wants a, I mean, when, when did I start wanting a marshmallow? I'll tell you when I started wanting a marshmallow, when I knew I couldn't have a marshmallow. You know that's how this works, right? As soon as they say don't do it, now all of a sudden you're going, but I really want it now. I want that marshmallow. That's what happens. The law says, don't covet. And now all of a sudden you're like, well, I didn't want anything until you said don't covet. And now I want everything, you know? I want everything now. Uh, you know, the, the, the law does that. The law exposes. Now, what Paul is showing us here is that the law is not the one creating the sin. The law is the one exposing the sin. See, the sin already lives in me. It's already there. Okay? The, the law isn't creating something that's not there. The law is, is shining the light on my heart to say, this is what's already there. Covetousness lies in me. That's why, by the way, as a side note, that's why it's so foolish when we look at people who are struggling with certain sins and we say, oh, I am so glad I'm not that person. Trust me, it's in you. It's in you too. You may have a better handle on it than that person. In fact, what usually is the case is that sin, at least at its root, is right there in your heart too. It just manifests itself in different ways. You may not struggle with homosexual tendencies, but you may struggle with heterosexual tendencies, and you are still a sinner in the, in the eyes of God. You go, well, my sin isn't like, no, it's not, but it's still sin. That's the problem. It's in my heart. It, and, I, and, I, and I've got it there, and law shines the light there so that you cannot let it go. Now, let me just say this. This is why the law is good for us. Why in the world would I want this sin still festering in my heart unaware? 
better for me to know this sin so that then we can do something about this sin and ultimately kill it. Why would I let it go? Just like, why would you be happy not knowing that you've got termites in your house? You know, life would be so much better if I didn't know that there were termites. Well, you still have termites in your house. <laughs> and your house is still going to completely crumble to pieces because your wood is, is all chewed up and everything. It's better for you to know than for you not to know and still have your house fall down. This is what he's saying here. The law exposes the sin. But not only that, but on the flip then, sin exploits the law. Look at verse 8 again. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He says the same thing in verse 11. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So you got these bookends here. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Look at what happens. He says in verse 8, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. It's like sin's playing possum. Sin's just laying there. And there's, there's nothing that you do with it. There's no, you know, you, you don't know it's there. You don't know, you know, what's going on uh, uh, in, the, in the shadows of your heart and in your mind and so on. You don't know what's happening. But, but once the law comes, as he says there in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So now the law has exposed what's going on in my heart, and having exposed what's going on in my heart, now sin, as it's kind of sleeping there, now sin now goes, aha, right? And now that it's exposed itself, it's taken me captive. It's exploited the law, taking an opportunity as the law is revealing sin in order to, uh, uh, to, to do me in, if you will, and now I'm under the grip of sin. Y'all may have played this game before where you pretend to be asleep, uh, and, and it's great for your kids, highly traumatic. Um, you're, you're, you're laying there, and, and you know they come in, and they're just like, Daddy? Daddy, are you, are you sleeping? And I want them to come closer, because it, it just makes it even better. And they come in, and that Daddy? 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 And then what happens? <laughs> you know, like that, <laughs> and they pass out. It's great, and uh, <laughs> you know, and it's wonderful. And I grab them, and ah, I got you, I got you, and everything. And they're screaming, and all of that. It's wonderful. Therapy's free. Um, <laughs> this is what sin does. You know, here, here's this whole thing as the light shines, the light of the law shines on our hearts, and and you hear as Paul says, "Don't covet," and and you start going. I don't have any greed in me. I'm not greedy. There's not anything that I want in all of our self-righteousness, right? You know, there's nothing that I, that, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm totally content with everything that I have. And sin is just sitting there playing possum, just waiting for the opportunity, see? And then once the opportunity comes, you see that commercial or for whatever reason, you're still watching HGTV and, uh, and, and, and you see these things pop up and you go, oh man, I, I want to, kitchen like that, you know, and I want a car like that, and I want a phone like that, and I want clothes like that, and I want a body type like that, and all of these different things, and now sin, aha, I gotcha, I was just tricking you, I was asleep, see, and that's what happens, 
Sin exploits the law. The law is here doing its good work of revealing and exposing sin, but sin then takes it and and, and subverts it, circumvents it, if you will, so that instead of it being good and revealing our sin, now it's opening up new possibilities and new ways for us to use our imagination, finding more and more uh, uh, ways that we can sin and more and more depths that we can go with our sin. That's the problem. But Paul's point here in verse 12 is that the law is holy and good. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay? Your problem is not the law. Your problem is sin. It's the sin that has us. So, Paul wants to keep on going and exonerating the law but condemning sin. He not only says that sin, not the law, is the real culprit, but now he goes on to say sin, not the law, is the cause of death. It's the cause of death. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? In other words, did this fail? It was supposed to be good. It was supposed to bring life. It was supposed to do all these things. But instead, it's, bringing, it, it's exposing my sin. It's exposing my condemnation. It, it, it's, it's, it's sealing me under the judgment of God. So this was a whole mess, right? The, the law is not good because the law is only revealing my, uh, the justification for my death. And he says, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding even then. The law is not what brings death to you. He says here, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. Why? In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, it might become sinful beyond measure. Listen up. You and I totally underestimate the sinfulness of sin. We are so nice and so kind to sin that is out to kill every single one of you. Sin is not like, you know, these people, you know, that, that have these, these exotic animals and, and all that. We, we look at the folks who have like a little, you know, poodle or whatever, and we go, oh, look at you with that little poodle. We see a person over here with a pet tiger, and we go, is there, are you okay? It seems like there's something wrong with you. Right? Why? Because we look at a poodle and we go, it's domesticated, it's nice, it's cuddly, it's cute, it's tiny, it's a little paperweight, it's great. We see the tiger and we go, that thing can maul you. Why in the world would you want that in your house? It's not a pet, it's a killer. Why in the world would we want sin as a pet? Sin is not a poodle. Sin is a tiger, and it's here to maul you. And he says here, this is what's going on. Sin uh, takes the law, uh, it, it, if you will, it weaponizes the law against our good. It takes something that is good, and it turns it on its head so that now the law, uh, it, it, it uses the law to condemn us. It uses the law to magnify itself and to show us just how bad it really can be. Notice it not only weaponizes the law against our good, but it also enslaves our flesh against our good. Look at verse 14. 
Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That's slavery language, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. It is good. If it weren't good, I wouldn't want it, Right? But the, but the very fact that I'm confessing that I want to do this is saying that this is good. I want to do the good thing. I want to live the life that God has revealed in the Scriptures as the way that I should go. I want to do that. But there is an enemy in me that wants so badly to go in the opposite direction that I find myself doing the things that I hate to do rather than doing the things that I know I should do. Is there anybody here that can testify to that? We know this, don't we? We know this so well. It's late at night. You're all by yourself. You go, what could you be doing right now? Well, you could be sleeping. That would be the good thing to do. You could spend your time fellowshipping with the Lord all by yourself. Just spending hours and hours in prayer, worshiping the Lord, delighting in Him. But what happens? Now all of a sudden you're going, you know, I could get away with something right now. You could be uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a relationship with somebody and, and that person, you know, just said something that just was just a little bit of a side swipe and everything. And you go, well, what, what, what could I do in this moment? Well, I could forgive that person. Just cut that person some slack. Live another day. But instead, I'm, no, no, no. I want to I nuke that person off the face of the earth. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. See, I know the way that I'm supposed to go, but, but I'm going this way. Why? He says, because my flesh is sold under sin. What is the flesh? The flesh is me. Okay? Note what's going on. When we came to faith in Jesus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that our souls, our spirits, if you will, our inner beings are being renewed day by day. Okay? There's a part of us that is just on the right track. There's a part of us that, 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 that hears what God is saying. Our hearts resonate with his heart, and we're, we're tracking, right? And we're going, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want to do exactly what he says. I want to walk by the Spirit. I want to live in a manner that is pleasing to him. He is my joy. He is my peace. He is my salvation. Yes, let's roll. But there's a part of you that hasn't quite gotten the memo. That's called the flesh. This flesh that's still not only under the curse of death, which is why all of us die, we die because the curse is still in us, in our flesh, and so on. But not only is the curse still in our flesh, but sin still has a grip on our flesh. Which is why when I wake up in the morning, or at least when I hear the alarm clock go off in the morning, I really just want to chuck it out the window. Why? Because I've got a flesh that's lazy. I got a flesh that does not want to get up right now. And what do I have to do? I've got to work against myself to turn the alarm off, get up out of bed, and get ready for work. You see what's going on? And that's a battle. Why is that a battle? Because I've got a flesh that does not want to work for the glory of Christ. And I've got a 
fight against my flesh in order to go in this direction. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body into submission using boxing language. So here he is boxing, and who's his opponent on the other side of the ring? Himself. He's like, I've got to fight daily against myself because there is a real part of me that wants to follow Jesus, but there's a real part of me that is still under the grip of sin and does not want to please Jesus. And I've got to pin that thing to the ground if that's what it's going to take for me to follow Jesus faithfully. That's what he's saying here. My flesh is still sold under sin. Sin has enslaved my flesh against my good. And now I'm, I'm, I'm in this battle with myself where I'm doing the things that I hate doing. Why? Because my flesh is so powerful. Not only that, but then he goes on to say that sin entraps me against my good. Not only does it weaponize the law and enslave the flesh, but it entraps me. Look what he says in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he reiterates, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Same thing he said in verse 17. It's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. Now you hear all of this and you go, Ron Jordan, you lied. Because this is not hopeful at all. This is miserable. But here's why I'm hopeful. Here's why I'm hopeful. Because the flesh is here by our Creator. God created our flesh, just as God created our souls. And God in Christ has promised to renew our bodies, and to renew our being. So my soul, as I said, is already on the, pick, on, on the same page and is, and is heading towards Christ's likeness and longs to. The desire to serve the Lord is real. I feel it. I want it. I want to be like Jesus. My soul is on the same page and says, let's roll. The bad news right now is our flesh isn't on the same page. But that's not the whole news. The whole news is there's coming a day where this body of mine is going to be renewed. There's coming a day where my flesh, with all its sinful desires and so on, will be buried. And when it will be buried, the battle will be over. But the story isn't over. Let me give some categories. There are some folks, uh, we call them uh, Platonists. And even later on in history, there was, there was another group that has kind of stayed throughout uh, church history. And even today, you see folks who have these kind of categories. They're called Gnostics. And, and in both of these categories, you have some, some overlap. There's some things that they agree on. Here's one of the things that they agree on. They agree that the spirit is good, but the physical, the spiritual is good, but the physical and the material are bad. And so salvation for them, and you'll hear this in Eastern religion, you even hear this even in some, I would say, quasi-Christian, uh, and I say quasi because I don't think it's totally what the Bible teaches, but some quasi-Christian uh, 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 teaching that will say that the hope for us and the deliverance for us is to die. And that's great because I'm no longer in this body, my spirit is in the presence of God, and I'll be in heaven and I will be with him forever. 
folks, that's not the whole story. That's not the whole story. Someone who's dealing with cancer, I've, I've had this plenty of times, folks who have, who have died of, of sicknesses or illnesses or things like that, and we say, well, that's okay now because the struggle is over. The struggle is over in that sense, but that's not the end of the story. The hope that we have is not merely death, the coming out of our bodies, putting the body into the ground or, or whatever we do with the body, and so that now we are free to live. That sounds great, but that's not the whole story. We serve a risen Christ, a, a Christ who has died physically, humanly, bodily into the grave, but did not stay in the grave. We serve a Savior who rose from the dead physically, humanly, bodily, and who ascended physically, humanly, bodily to the right hand of the Father, where he sits physically, humanly, bodily, forever as our great high priest and our exalted Lord. Amen? This is the truth of our gospel. And the good news in the good news is that like Christ, we too will rise physically, humanly, bodily. But the body that went into the grave is not the same as the body that will come out of the grave. The body that will come out of the grave is a body that is never again under the slavery to sin. Never again will sin have a grip on a part of us. Sin will have no grip on any part of us forever. And in that resurrection, I will finally be free with my spirit and my body on the same page, going towards Christ and saying, all I have is yours. All I am is yours. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That is the day that we are looking forward to. What does that mean? That means this struggle that you are uh, dealing with right now, the battle that you're in right now with sin has an expiration date. There is a day that is coming when never again will you struggle with sin. In your body, you will finally know what it's like never to have a lustful thought. You will finally know what it's like never to have a, 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 a snide remark in your head come around. You'll know what it's like never again to feel pride. You'll know what it's like never again to feel hatred towards someone else. You'll know what it's like never to feel impatient. You, you will know what it's like to be fully like Christ in your body. The day is coming. The day is coming soon. Until then, it's a fight. Oh, it's a fight. But it's a fight that we will win. And it's a fight that we must win. Because Christ and Christ alone, our risen Christ, is our victory. Amen? But we, in order to do that, we've got to look at where the problem is. We've got to know who the enemy truly is. The enemy is not the law. The law is here to expose who the enemy really is. The enemy is sin. Sin deeper in us than we could ever imagine. But sin for which Christ died on the cross. And sin that will one day, with death and the enemy, be thrown into the lake of fire forever. Sin that will not last forever. But we, in our bodies, with Christ, will live forever. And that day is coming soon. So let's live well. Let's fight well. Let's hope well. 
Because this struggle is just a temporary struggle. The battle has already been won by Christ. So let's fight on. And let's make sure that we're fighting the real enemy. The sin that will one day fully and finally be defeated. Because the risen Christ will have the last word. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord. By your grace and for your glory, I pray that you would indeed help us to diagnose well who the real culprit is. It's the sin that works in us, the sin that still has a grip on a real part of our lives, but sin that is ultimately defeated because Jesus is risen. Jesus is our King. And He has given us in His Holy Spirit all the power that we need to fight on. Fight on until the day where sin will be no more. So Father, I pray that we would go on in this hope. Be with us in the frustration. Lord, I know that if there are any like me, Lord, they know the despair. They know the frustration. They know the hurt. They know the disappointment. They know the shame. They know the guilt. They know all of these different things. But Lord, I pray that we would take all of them and lay them at the foot of our risen King at His throne and say, in You and You alone I have victory. In You and You alone I have hope. And Lord, we long for the day when we wholly, body and soul, will taste the final redemption when Christ returns and we will see Him face to face and our joy and our redemption will be complete. And we will never again long for the deceitful pleasures of sin. But we will live in the holy joy that only Christ can give. May that day come quickly. And may we even get a taste of it today as we say no to sin and say yes to You by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We thank You, Father. Again, I pray that if there is anyone here that does not believe in Jesus, perhaps they've been struggling and they know the things that have a grip on their hearts and have a grip on their minds and have a grip on their lives, they know that this is not the way to go. Lord, I pray that they would see in Jesus and in Jesus alone the way, the way to go, the way out of sin and into righteousness, the way out of death and into life, the way out of idolatry, and into worship of the one true living God. May today be the day where they say yes to Jesus. May today be the day where they would experience a little bit of what it means to be fully alive. We thank you, Father, for all these things. May we treasure you and enjoy you forever. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.